Hi, I'm Ray, a storyteller, educator, mom, and your host of Homeroom, an international podcast bridging the education gap between the classroom and the living room. Growing up, my single immigrant mom was so busy working multiple jobs to make ends meet, she couldn't afford to give me a lot of her time. So she relied on schools to teach me everything about how to succeed in life. But under-resourced and over-standardized, our one-size-fits-all education system had other priorities. In this liminal space of unmet expectations, I fell into a blind spot. Homeroom is my attempt to figure out why. In this first season, I speak with people in all walks of life from around the world about their own experiences with their education systems. I want to know what worked, what didn't, and what ideas they have on improving it for our next generation. In this episode, I speak with Tess, an art advisor and activist, graffiti artist, and professional mom based in New Jersey, United States, about the mental and emotional dexterity required to navigate career, family, and side projects. We talk honestly and vulnerably about the challenges of raising children and why the choice between career and family might be a myth. Here is our edited conversation. I don't think I was very lovable as a teenager. (laughs) In fact, I don't know many teenagers who are very lovable. Mm. Like I have had, oh my gosh, seven teenagers or something in my house. Oh yes. And like, dude, none of them are very warm and cuddly. (laughs) Yes, because you're a foster mom too. And I think you're on number 30 or like 20 something, like you're almost at 30. 22. Yeah. Yeah, you're at 22. That's like so incredible. Um, so like I was listening to you on this other podcast, right? You were sharing your experiences of like projects that you're working on. And, um, the host of that podcast was telling you like, you know, you should talk more about being a mom and like how to be a better parent. Okay. So how did you feel when that person gave me that advice? So someone gave me, I was saying, you know, I have my personal life, which is foster care and being a mom. And then I have my professional life, which is, you know, Princeton University and uh, other things, other interests. I I do some graffiti. So these are my two interests or these are my two things. And I have personal and professional and I was looking for balance. How do you feel about his advice. So I felt like this person was giving you this advice from a very male perspective with this expectation that women are motherly and women are naturally nurturing and, um, you know, like how women have always it has always fallen on the women to do the child rearing or to care for the children. And I took it very hard um, personally because I am a new mom. Uh, I never thought that I would become a mom. 
and I didn't really have a very strong understanding of what a mom should be. Um, and I really struggled with that uh, because I think it's, I'm really tired of hearing that from society, right? Um, in just almost every setting that you should make being a mom like your life's work. And I don't think he meant it in that way, um, to be fair. Uh, but that is kind of how, because I have my own traumas and like my own biases, that is how my body understood it. That's interesting because you're a new mom, right? And, uh, and it has only been a, a few months, maybe a few years since, um, since you really felt that in your body and those chemical changes, right? But I think um, in terms of my response, I, it was very logical to me, like how he parsed it up. Yeah. Um, that I would be, you know, you cannot have work-life balance in this way, but you have to either do foster care or you have your work. And that um, to be wildly, famously successful you know, you would have to take those apart and either focus on one or the other. The reason I say it was very logical to me is because I, I was a foster mom before I was a biological mom. Mm -hmm. And in foster care, it is very logical. It's like almost school setting. Kids come into your care, you have them for a significant period of time, let's say it's eight, nine months, and then they move on to the next foster home or they move on to become reunited with their parents or go to an aunt or uncle. So you really only have them for like a school year, maybe less. And so it's, for me, it was very logical, like, oh, he's thinking about this in a very uh, linear way that I am a professional mom. I get paid to do this. It's not like I don't get paid. <laughs> and so this is a profession. And then this also is a profession. And so he's telling me to choose one profession over the other. Yeah. Um, so like that was my experience as a foster mom, but now I'm a biological mom. Uh, my kids are pretty little still. Uh, toddler age. <laughs> My oldest just got potty trained. Nice. And um, <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, like, do you feel like it's a job still? Do you feel like there's a there's a connection between a career being a mom and, um, you know, because I'm a foster mom, so I do think m being a mom is a career. Yeah. So. You're absolutely right um, when he was talking about your particular choices because it was one like professional project versus this other professional project, right? And so I do agree that it was a very logical piece of advice. And, and also like, but, but my thought was 
I didn't think that that was even an option that you had brought to the table. And so I think that's what threw me for a loop, right? Um, And, you know, like, again, like, I don't think his intention, right? I think his intention truly was from, like, his expertise of looking at the market and looking at, like, you know, Uh, social media and looking at um, competition, right? And so it was a very like logically sound piece of advice. But at the same time, being a woman who also has spoken to you um, about these things quite in depth, uh, it felt triggering, and I know it's because of my own biases and my own traumas and, you know, like, um, and so like to answer your question more directly, I love my daughter. I would not take her back. I care about her so much and my love for her grows every single day, um, And it's really remarkable to bring another human into the world. Um, At the same time, because I still have not figured out how to live my life with um, these new responsibilities, it has felt like onboarding at a new job, you know? Like, this is your new schedule, this is your commute, Um, you have to eat at this certain time, and you have to feed this other person too. It's very challenging. It's very challenging. (laughs) It does feel like a job. And um, I am trying to align my values to make it feel more like I'm developing a relationship with my daughter rather than thinking of it as a job but at the moment my whole life I've only had jobs (laughs) you know like or or I was in school and so this is just like a completely different piece of software and the only way that I can understand it is well it doesn't feel like study (laughs) um it definitely feels more like work um so I don't know if that answers your question, but um, yeah. Yeah, so I did not, I didn't uh, put that as an option on the table, right? So I didn't, I was trying to find a work-life balance. Right. And I thought this is my home life and this is my work life and can I find a balance? And so the option was not get rid of my home life or, or, put my home life on display, right? right? Like, it wasn't centered around home life. It was either work life or home life. You know, how do do I find a balance? Um, Yes, so the the conversation kind of of morphed into that and he gave that advice. But I would say that um, I'm with you. Like, my love for my kids grows every day. In fact, my love for my foster kids grows every day. Yeah. Um, 
I love children and I like teaching people. I like teaching people new skills in general. And so like, you know, my foster son came home the other day um, or he came over, I would say. He lives elsewhere, but he came to my house and he knocked on the door and I said, how are you doing? And he has a job and we discussed his job and I kind of taught him how to talk to his boss. Mm. Like, oh, you're having a problem at work. Let me teach you how to take time off. Like, how do you take a vacation day at work? Here's how, you know, it's like small things like that where you know, my 21 year old son comes home and I'm like, yeah, let me teach you something. And that love kind of grows. Um, but it's, it's an intermittent job. Yeah. Right. Like I don't always have my son with me to teach him. And currently you do have your daughter home with you to teach. But that will become more intermittent as that person grows. And it's a difficult transition in any life to to have such dependence and then grow to be more independent. And then like right now, my mom and I are our friends, actually. Like I would consider my mother my friend hmm. instead of... <laughs> Instead of like, um, she is still a motherly figure, but like, we can talk more as equals. Yeah. When did that start, that dynamic of like feeling like um, she's more of your friend? When did that start? Do you know? I can pinpoint an exact moment. (laughs) I love it. I was 25. I had a very serious boyfriend. I was living with my boyfriend. And my mom, I came home to spend like maybe two weeks at home for an extended vacation or something. Maybe it was during Christmas time, I'm not sure. And she said something like, just leave. I want a canoodle. Or I want a canoodle with your dad. Or you have to leave, we're, we're canoodling here. I was like, you would have never, ever referenced sex ever before. But now you know that it's okay to reference sex. And I know because you just referenced (laughs) sex that I can reference sex now. And it was like that moment where it was like, okay, we're equals. We can both talk about exactly the same things. So it's almost like um, that was like the last layer of maturity that you needed to like transcend in order to be like, okay, you're human, I'm human, we're the same. Yes, but up into that point, right? Like there are many different layers and maybe people in other relationships have different layers. So if you have a relationship with your mom where you never discuss money, 
right? Like you never discuss your job, you never discuss money, how much you make, uh, how expensive things are, what your apartment costs, all of that stuff, then maybe your mom referencing money might have been that. Yeah. Or um, if you never discuss, I don't even know, like there are many different topics where parents kind of um, shelter their children. No, it's totally true. And you know what I realized as you were talking about that is I think when I was really young, uh, I, I didn't get to see my mother that often because she was really busy. Um, and I do remember like sometimes like really late at night, maybe during middle school or high school, like two or three in the morning, like she would be awake working on designs and I would be awake working on homework or just having insomnia and we would like eat like instant ramen because we thought it was like a bonding activity and so we would talk about life and things like that yeah and those are like some of the fondest memories that I have with my mother uh but I remember like she still really sheltered me from like the real world problems and she actually kept me very she treated me like she definitely protected me from like having to worry about some like scary things and um but i don't think we ever got to a place where we could start talking about those scary things or just like so it took me a really long time to see my mother as a human And I still really struggle with, um, like, I always just, I want her to just be my mom. Like, there was a time where she told everybody, oh, we're, like, we're friends. And yes, like, we can talk like we're friends, but as far as, like, having a role in my life, like, I always want her to be that nurturing person. And... I don't really want, I'm always a little bit scared of having conversations where she reveals that actually she's human. And I mean, it's so strange to say it like that. And so publicly, something that I usually just keep in my mind. And so I wonder for you, like, do you ever still want to go back to feeling like she was just your mom or do you appreciate this new like dynamic of treating her like a friend well I think um that has a lot to do with my becoming a mother Mm. right so um so when I was 25 we had this conversation I be I recognized that she was human, but I was still on her health care. You know, I was still kind of a dependent of her. Uh, I was still asking for her to pay for things, you know, like, I don't gas, my insurance, uh, my, you know, like my car insurance, that kind of thing. So there was definitely a dependency there where I still wanted her to be my mother. Um, but like, as soon as I became a mom, yeah, 
I think this kind of shifted where I don't want to go back. Mm. Um, I, I always want it. I, now I want to be on the same level with her cause I don't want to be less of a mother. Mm. And that I, it almost feels like if she still has to mother me, then I'm not doing my job for my kids. Mm. Um, and and that's maybe that's just the chip on my shoulder, right? Where I'm like, uh, the chip on my shoulder makes me feel like I'm s- still dependent on the comfort of my mother. And that means that I can't comfort my children, right? Like those levels. Um, so the other thing that I will say is that um, there are there are things where I can definitely know that I will never be more um, more than just a mom mm. to some of my kids. So like in foster care, because you're continually teaching kids, like my 21-year-old son, I'm continually teaching him, he will never look at me as more than a mom. As, as a friend on, a, on the same level, we will sort of never arrive at that level where I feel comfortable that he knows as much as I know. Mm. And so like that is a different dynamic as well where like he will always look at me as this mother figure and I have to get used to that because it's not, I'm not a mother figure in my daily life. (laughs) Like, you know, I go to work. (laughs) I don't have to be a mom at work, right? You can sort of shed those skins. But, and eventually my toddler will grow up and he will shed me, like hopefully. That's like my hope that he will become a father and like, you know. But I think if you continually are in this teaching learning capacity, this is just as a side note this is the reason why i cannot homeschool Mm. kids i i like absolutely cannot homeschool my own kids i cannot homeschool foster kids i'm not a good homeschooler and that's because i want to be able to like shed that sort of skin and I don't always want to be in the teaching and learning capacity. Interest. Oh, I see what you mean. Like day to day. Yeah. That makes sense. But I think it's also, I, I don't know if this is true. And maybe you've talked to more people who have homeschooled their children. But I wonder when do they ever shift? Like, do they ever become friends in that homeschool environment? Like, it might come when they're 30 instead of when they're 25, you know? Yes. And, you know, I kind of want to ask you before we move on to this, um, when you say like you will always have that relationship like of like the motherly or like that teaching role with your foster kids, is that something that is like legally bound? Um, Where does that sort of like guiding expectation come from? Is it something that is set by the state or is it set by you and your child or 
your own boundaries? I believe that it's set by my own boundaries. So after kids are no longer in my care, there is no legal expectation. I so I could, like, my son's name is Josh, right? Like, I can say that because I am not legally his mom. There is no legal binding um, for me, you know, covering his identity anymore. He is a grown up. He lives independently, even though he is still in the foster care system currently, because um, you can stay in until you're 26. But so, like, I mean, I have no limitations now because I'm not their um, legal guardian anymore. Mm. When I am their legal guardian, there's a lot more. Like, I can't put them on social media and I can't, um, you know, I have to limit my talk about their situations. After I'm their legal guardian, I have no, I can talk freely about every single one of them. Okay, I see. So if that is like your own mental boundaries, um, what do you think it, it, what do you think is the reason you decide to stay, like to keep that power distance? Okay, so I, I don't know a lot of foster kids, right? I only know my own. And I will say that they choose to keep it. Got it. Not me. So I also have a foster cousin. Um, my aunt was, you know, adopted kids. Um, not le- She didn't legally adopt them, but she had numerous foster children. And so I have a foster cousin. And I, I believe that she's 40 years old and she still sort of keeps this relationship where she, she wants that motherly figure mm. in her life. You know, she's, she's looking for it. When she calls her mom, she's looking for advice. Mm-hmm. When she calls her mom, she's looking for care, right? Yeah. When, when Josh comes over, he's looking for care. I always feed him. I, you know, I talk to him about his job. I'm always kind of motherly towards him. But that could be portrayed as I'm just a warm person. He takes it as if I'm his mom. Yeah. And so, like, even though that legal boundaries or the legal expectation goes away, I think, like, that bond that was created between you two, which was personal, and um, I think that stays for a really long time. And you're right. I think when, you know, like you are a foster mom, like professionally, um, I guess it is really hard to get to a level of, I mean, I'm not saying like, like you can still communicate in such a way that maybe like that friends would use like words or phrases or even like, um, structures of conversation, but that like role that you fill in that person's life right, will always be, oh, well, she was my mom, you know? And so that role, I think, is really hard to, um, you know, like, to erase. And actually, I was hoping maybe um, to ask you this before we end our conversation. Um, What are the biggest 
far-reaching, biggest impact-making things that parents could do to prepare their children for the future. Okay, so I don't, I try not to give advice, but your life will change as a parent. That's just a fact. And if you allow your child to come into your life and you embrace that child into your life, so for example, if you like to work out and then you embrace your child and you work out with your child, you put them on your back. They do stretches with you when they get to be, you know, toddler age. Um, you go running with them when they're like five and six. You know, if they work out with you and you embrace that, that child will be better. But if you treat them as if they are other and you treat them as if they are a child, as if they are a baby, as if they are a separate entity to you, then that child will be worse. Their life and development will be worse. When my husband goes to mow the lawn, he specifically bought a push mower that like, like that circular mower that cuts all the grass without a motor so that our kids can mow the grass with him. Oh. Right? So like, instead of saying, you're too young, I'm Mm. pushing you out of this experience, we always embrace the kids that we have in our house. Like I, how many rakes do I have? I have like 17 different rake sizes in my house because when we go to rake leaves in the fall, it's like, yep, every single person is coming out. Whether you're newly walking or you're 24 years old, like, sorry, you're in my house, you're doing it. Um, Wow. Yeah, like I, I love graffiti, right? So I love to spray paint. Every single kid, that I've ever had has spray painted with me. Wow. Like I just bring them out. I'm like, let's go to a legal place or we'll spray paint in our backyard and I'll just show you because I want to do this. I'm going to put on music. I'm going to do it for myself. This is my creative time that I get for me. And you're either going to sit down and you're going to be bored and just listen to the music or I can teach you how to spray paint with me and you can spray paint some smiley face or something. But like, I'm not giving up who I am. I don't have, as a parent, as a mom, I don't have to do anything differently than I did before. Yeah. And I think that's really um, a powerful statement. And I think like right now my daughter just kind of recently started walking and when I say recently, like in the past three months, um, it still feels like so weird that she was not walking in April, but now she is walking very easily. Um, she still falls a little bit. 
Um, but we have like barricades, not barricades, but we have like little gates of like, oh no, you can't come in here because you might fall and you know, like you might injure yourself. But now I'm like rethinking this and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I just let her enter my disaster of my office and I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I would. I, I would let her enter any room that she feels confident entering. You know, you're sitting in that room and you're not futzing with your paperwork or you're not, you know, playing with the stapler. She can learn how to be in that room and not touch any of those things. And, and if you teach her now, then in two years when she is a toddler and she's really angry and she's having a tantrum, mm. she's not going to viciously go into your office mm. and, you know, like throw the stapler around because she knows that that office is off limits. Mm. She's going to do it on the floor in front of you. Yeah. I have to rethink my entire parenting philosophy after having this conversation, Tess. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning into our conversation. Talking to Tess about eating instant ramen with my mom at 1 or 2 in the morning reminded me of another memory. When I was in the 10th or 11th grade, my mother came home after work one day and called me into the dining room, excited to share something with me. I peeled myself off my computer and saw her pull out half of her lunch. As she handed it to me, she said, this is the best pastrami sandwich I've ever had. She eagerly waited for me to agree. After a couple of bites, I didn't disagree, but I couldn't understand what was so remarkable about it that she would save me half of her lunch to share it with me half a day later. Several years ago, I traveled from South Korea to Canada to attend the Toronto Film Festival's industry conference for a week. While walking from my Airbnb to the conference venue every morning, I passed by a French cafe. On the fourth day I was there, I finally went in and had the most amazing cinnamon pastry I've ever had in my life. Before returning to Seoul, I stopped by the cafe to pick up two more of these pastries one for my plane ride home, and the second one for my husband. I could not wait to share it with him. I placed special care to keep it on top of all my luggage to prevent flattening the pastry and ensuring that the paper bag stayed firmly shut so that the pastry wouldn't dry out. About 18 hours later, after hugging my husband because I had missed him so much, I pulled out the pastry and sat with him until he had taken a bite. Isn't it the most amazing pastry you've ever had? I asked, certain he would agree. After a few bites, he nodded his head and said it was a decent pastry, but not the best one he's ever had. Pastries, pastrami sandwiches, It isn't really about the taste of the food that makes us want to share, is it? It's actually about sharing an experience or moment that brought us immense joy with the people in our lives whom we love the most. 
Thank you so much for listening. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please connect with us on social media at the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own education journey with us on this podcast, please send me a DM on Instagram.